Hello, this is Mark Spiegler, and you're listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, supported by UBS. When I first saw Moses Sumney, self-sequestered in the back of a Manhattan gallery, I didn't know who he was, but I knew he must be somebody. Strikingly tall, ebony skin set off by bleached blonde hair, Moses has the erect yet fluid carriage of a dancer. His personal style is both ambiguous and androgynous. Moses speaks with the deliberation and vocabulary of the poet he once trained to be. But at age 20, after years as a bedroom musician, Moses broke onto the Los Angeles music scene, and he was chased by record companies attracted to his unmistakable star power. The night we met marked the opening for his feature-length film, Black Galatia, at Nicola Vassell Gallery, part of his relatively new venture into the art world. Our conversation delves deep into the themes of his Ghanaian-American identity, blackness in the cultural sphere, and the place of forced isolation as part of his creative process. If you find this conversation compelling, please review and favorite Intersections wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Moses Sumney. We're not in the same room. So I'm going to ask you, Moses, where are you? Tell us about your surroundings today. I am in Asheville, North Carolina at my house. I'm in my office slash studio and the door is open because it's quite warm. You actually might be able to hear the birds chirping. and If that's a disturbance, I'll ask them to quiet down. But yeah, I'm in my office and it's just really cozy and comfy in here. You've lived in Nashville for a few years, but that's not where you've lived all your life. And you have quite an interesting history. You were born in 1992 in California and you spent your early childhood in San Bernardino. But at the age of 10, you moved to Ghana, which is kind of a reverse immigrant story. How was that for you to be an American boy and then suddenly be in Ghana, in Accra? Yeah, it was very difficult for me. I definitely became familiar with displacement. At a really early age, I was a very American, Americanized child. Culturally, I loved television and Pokemon. (laughs) I wasn't a very affable person. It was hard for me to make friends. And so moving at the age of 10 was really quite difficult for me. Suddenly, I was surrounded by this culture that I knew to be mine, but I did not know in my bones. So it was tricky. You moved back to America at the age of 16, and then you said that you decided when you moved back to America that you were going to reinvent yourself. And this is something that happens quite commonly, that when you move to a new place, you're like, well, I'm going to be a different person. So tell us who 16-year-old Moses decided he was going to be when he landed (laughs) back in America from Ghana. I think I decided I was just going to be cooler. I was going to be a little bit weirder. And I wasn't going to care what people thought of me or said to me. I was a really late bloomer, so I'm quite tall now. I'm about six foot four. But I didn't have my growth spurt until 16, actually. So it all kind of happened. And I was a year ahead in school. So I was this kind of nerdy, dorky kid that got picked on a lot. I was like a nerd with bad grades, which is the worst combination. (laughs) And so I think I decided that I would just be cool and... I had no sense culturally of what it meant to be cool, but I understood that it was rooted in confidence. I decided to be confident and I decided to be excellent, actually, at everything that was in front of me. Let's turn to music, which is how you came to fame and how you ended up here on this podcast. 
you were not the musical virtuoso who was winning the talent show at the age of eight, but it was something that was more of a, a very private thing for a very long time. Did you learn to play any instruments as a child? I did not learn to play instruments. I always wanted to learn guitar, but another classic immigrant story that I'm sure you've heard a million times is the immigrants come to America and they're like, all right, go to school, study and be great. And for me, my family, my parents were very against the idea of me being a musician because they thought that I was setting myself up for a life of failure, potentially. And so I always wanted to play the guitar and I was obsessed with country music as well. And my parents were just like, mm, we're, just, we're not really good. We're just not. We're not doing that. What I did do was learn to internalize my desires to become a musician. And I taught myself how to sing from a young age. Is it right that you developed your singing skills by singing songs back into a computer and listening to them? It sounds like your music school was a laptop. <laughs> well, this was pre-laptop, kind of. When we lived in Ghana, it was just this big desktop computer and they used to be all fat and chunky. And we had this software that came with the computer, which was just a voice recording software. And I would play with that for hours and hours, just recording my voice, listening back, being disgusted, trying it again, recording it over and over. I could layer my voice and speed it up and rewind it and reverse it. So that's definitely what became my music school and how I gained a knowledge foundationally of how my voice sounded and how I learned to manipulate my voice. And then, yeah, a few years later when YouTube came about, <laughs> I started watching videos of people playing guitar on YouTube and I would sneak and borrow a friend's guitar or borrow one from school and try to learn that way. But then when I went to university, I went to UCLA and at that point I decided, all right, I need to really get going. <laughs> all right, let's get on with it. Everyone else who wants to be a musician or a singer has had a head start. The talent shows from 10 years old and whatnot. And I was just throwing myself into the deep end. So I got there and I like bought a guitar, a really cheap guitar off of eBay and started writing songs on the guitar, which is really how I learned. And then I started performing right away. This was another kind of transformation and reinvention for me because I was quite shy. And even though I had been working on my confidence, I was not known as a musician or the musician. If anyone knew me for anything, it probably would have been as a writer or just as that weird African kid. But in, in university, I said, I'm going to perform now and I'm going to perform everywhere. And I did almost immediately, you know, talent shows, coffee shop, on the lawn, in the dorms, everywhere I could because I had this sense of urgency around becoming a musician and I felt really quite behind as I understand the story, you went relatively quickly from never having performed in front of anybody to performing quite regularly and then even starting to be on the circuit where record companies were noticing you, were seeing you, then you were interacting with the industry quite quickly after starting to perform. Yeah, it happened really quickly for me. There was little hints of it while I was still in college. I was in an indie rock band in addition to performing my own music solo. And we would do like showcases in Hollywood, running around Los Angeles, playing the 
extra room at the House of Blues. And I was quite surprised to see the reception that we received and that I received quickly. And I really kind of expected to be grinding and going unrecognized for years, especially because the music that I loved and the music that I wanted to be in alignment with was independent music, which is a lot slower to catch on. But in those early days of performing around Los Angeles, I was actually very quickly finding myself in front of A&Rs and lawyers and agents and having meetings at Columbia Records or in the Capitol building and just being like, what is going on? It all started blowing up very, very quickly. So, I mean, in theory, you were very quickly living the dream. And yet it sounds like it was rather disquieting or destabilizing for you. How did that all feel? I was not ready for it. For many, maybe it would have been a dream, but for me, it was a nightmare. I hated it. <laughs> I really hated it. Why did I hate it so much? I just found it to be so superficial. And I had a, a sense that I had an opportunity as an artist, not just as a singer or as a personality, which is how people were engaging with me, but I had the opportunity to do something unique. But... That wasn't being recognized. I was just kind of being treated like an avatar of myself. And I could see that industry people had an idea of what I could be. That was very different than my idea of what I could be. It was a pop star or even worse, an R&B star. I guess I realized that I had waited my whole life to be recognized as someone with talent. And I could wait a little longer is what I learned because... It was too soon for me to be recognized for what I was doing because I needed people to recognize me for who I was. And I did not yet fully know who I was as an artist. Yeah, it was tricky and it was nightmarish. And I ended up just telling everyone politely to fuck off. And now a brief word from our partners at UBS. From the same partnership that brings you the Intersections podcast comes the Art Basel and UBS Art Market Report. Out now, this year's edition shows how the global art market staged a phenomenal comeback in 2021. Find out how online sales fared as crowds returned to galleries and auction houses and how changing global wealth impacted collecting trends. Get your copy now at UBS.com slash collecting. And now back to the show. It's interesting because obviously you're a smart guy and you, especially being in LA and following musicians' careers... I'm sure we're conscious of the fact that sometimes a spotlight doesn't come back to you. Did you worry at all about the jeopardy of deliberately missing what could have been your only moment? Yeah, I had people constantly telling me, what are you doing? You've got to strike while the iron is hot. I'd have people take me aside, like in a caring way, radio DJs being like, we've been waiting for your single for two years. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard you met with that manager, but you're not working with them. What are you doing? We've seen this happen before and it's going to go away. I was kind of worried about that. But what I gained from a lifetime of not being supported in my dreams to be an artist was an irrational faith. 
And I would say that that irrational faith is key to anyone pursuing a career in the arts. Because I had to believe from a young age that I could do it, even though all signs pointed to I couldn't. And that moment, more than a fear that I would be wrong for walking away, I had a justification for the faith that I'd had my whole life. I had this deep feeling of, oh, I was right. People like me and people will like me. And there was two things I had to tell myself, well, if they like me now, and I haven't even put any songs out yet, I haven't even shown who I am as an artist, they're going to like me more when I prove myself. And then the other thing was, this could all go away, but this isn't my dream. My dream wasn't to be a celebrity or to be a famous pop singer. My dream was to push art forward and to make inquiries into the state of the soul and to create something that had never been done before. If you could have chosen three bands to open up for on a concert tour at the time, what bands would they have been? Or what <laughs> people would they have been? That's a great question. At the time, it probably would have been Sufjan Stevens, James Blake, and Solange. And I opened for all of them at the time. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So you were definitely on fire. You just weren't ready to sign. Yeah, and I wasn't ready to put a record out either. Yeah. But in the end, you did do a debut record, and it was put out. So tell me about it. Somehow. <laughs> Somehow we made it through. I took many years. It was probably about four years to the date that people started really talking about me and trying to sign me that I finally signed a much, much, much smaller record deal and put out a record that no one could end anticipate really and i really took my time trying to find my sound or even more than that trying to create a sound and yeah and then i put it out i guess <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it did it okay and it did okay and was it after that record that you moved to Asheville? great question yes it was i had fallen in love with Asheville over the course of making that first record i started writing my first album in 2014 in Woodfin, which is a little town above Asheville. And I lived in this house for a month with no internet or phone service, just writing and searching. And I went back to LA and everything felt different. I, I realized that I was spending so much of my time running away from LA, but running away from this little part of it that I felt trapped in. And every year or every few months, I would go back to Asheville to write and to have moments of quiet. I actually left L.A. before my album came out. I submitted it probably in May, and I left in June. And I moved to London, where I've always wanted to live, for about a year. And while I was living in London, I was going out a lot, and I was having a great time. And at one point, it was 7 a.m., and I was still up and out. And I was just like, I'm actually not sad enough to write another album. <laughs> I needed that isolation. I needed to get back to that state of isolation. So I left. And in 2018, I moved to Asheville, which at that point was a place I had no friends, no family, no car, nothing. And I plunged myself in and I started working. I really do believe in the power of isolation and the power of isolation 
in nature. I remember reading Thoreau early on and his ideas around transcendentalism were just so important. And I immediately felt that and have always felt that in isolation, but never as much as when I'm isolated in nature. And it's important to point out that it's not just a blissful happiness, like la 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 la, skipping through the trees. It's scary and it's hard work and it's beautiful and it's full of melancholy. And I find that richness of emotion is something that I absolutely need in order to write, in order to make art that has a depth and is asking me questions about my own soul and my own state of being. Let's bring it up to the current moment. We actually met in person a few months ago in New York at the screening of Black Alicia, your film that you made, uh, I guess last year, at Nicola Vassell's gallery in Chelsea. And it was interesting because as I understand it, you started as a writer and then you became a musician. And then this is a kind of a concert film, but it's more or less feature length. And it's certainly not just a bunch of people playing music on a stage. I'm curious where that project came from, how it came about, what you learned from it. That project came from the conditions of 2020, and particularly the isolation, the fact that I was stuck in the mountains. I mean, stuck sounds negative. It actually was a beautiful experience. I was marooned in my home. And the fact that I was supposed to tour and that I had been planning to make a feature-length film for my album, my second album, Grey, which came out in 2020. So I had all these ideas and a bit of funding for this film, and then everything shut down, and I still had the funding, and I suddenly had a lot of time. Over the course of the next few months, I fell in love with photography. I started shooting on film and just teaching myself how to work analog cameras what that brought up for me was a deeper relationship with myself as a sort of visual artist. I had directed a few music videos of my own prior to that, but I was like, okay, I need to find a way to combine all of these things, combine this film that I was going to make with my love of photography and my photography practice was predominantly self-portraiture out in nature. And then I had all these live arrangements that were just sitting in a cloud, essentially. So then I decided to make a concert film, a performance film. And it had always been a dream of mine to make a sort of live album. And I'm not sure of a lot of things in life, but one thing I was sure of is that we were damn good at music. And I wanted to make a performance film that was kind of going beyond what we think of when we think of a concert film. I wanted to make something that was an ode to nature, that was an exploration, that was a bit experimental, something that was very lyrical and rich cinematographically. <laughs> and yeah, so I just went into this process of combining. And so I got the band back together and and then we came up with Live from Black Alachia, which is, yes, this performance film that shot outside in the mountains. Was it a threshold you had to cross to become a film director? I realized through the lens of other people that I was already a director before I knew that I was a director. 
There was a point in uh, 2019, I have this music video called Virile, where I had written an idea for video and I had taken all these meetings with directors and I just couldn't find anyone to direct it for whatever reason. <laughs> no one could see the vision. And my producer just said to me, well, why don't you just direct it? You've got all the ideas. You've written it out. You know what the shots are. You know where you want to shoot it. It kind of sounds like you're directing it. And every project I've ever worked with you on that other people were directing on, you were directing. And I was like, no, 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 no. I can't direct. I can't direct something and also be in it. I don't want to be a director. That's not what I want. And she's like, no, but you already are. And I realized that for the past few years, I had been... Um, I know I'm not going to say micromanaging, but I'm just so heavily involved in everything that I do, everything that comes from my artistic world, that I also didn't really know what a director was. It came out of necessity. It came from feeling that no one else could make what I was seeing and would make it with the exact amount of care that I had. With a cavity by my side And nothing left to hold but pride Will I hold out for more time Were you concerned at all that people would say, well, he's not a director, he's just a musician, or that kind of thing. I've dealt with this issue my whole life. He's not an artist, which turned into he's a singer, which turned into he's an R&B singer, which turned into he's an indie singer. You know, I think people have been trying to classify me, and wrongly so, my entire life, and especially my entire career, just within the music world. So I'm kind of used to that. Coming into this project, I, I recognize that classification is important to people. It, it gives people a sense of familiarity. It makes them feel like they know what's going on. And I think that's one of the unfortunate things about the consumption of art is that we often come to art with preconceived notions about the pieces and the people who make them. But what's interesting to me is not the title. It's not someone's job title or it's not their division of being an artist. What's interesting to me is their story. I don't really care so much if people recognize that I'm a director. What's important for me is that people know that I'm a storyteller. And that's important to me in the consumption of a work. I'm not so interested to know when I watch a film or when I listen to an album. Did this person go to school? Did this person go to film school? Did they train? Who did they train under? What I want to know is where do they come from and what is their perspective on the world? So I suppose I don't really care so much if people discount me as a director. I made this and it's my story. And I think that's so much more interesting. In recent years, I think you've been more involved with the art world than in the past. Obviously, you had the show that I saw in New York. You also did a show at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn called Techno Echno Phenomena. And I'm curious how you compare your interactions with the music world and with the art world, because it sounds from what we were saying before that the art world was not a big part of your life and it's becoming something that you're more interested, involved in, where you get more recognition than in the past. Well, I've wanted to enter into the art world more in recent years because I could feel myself stretching beyond the disciplines that I was known for. I am a storyteller, and that is the real discipline. And I find that every story has its own medium. 
Sometimes for me, it's a song. Sometimes it's a film. Sometimes it's a sound, a vocalization. Sometimes it's a photograph. But you just can't tell every story in every way. You need a different set of tools. And that's what I found. And so it became necessary to me to move beyond the music world because the tools at my disposal as a musician were just so limited. The ability of the audience, I think, to conceive of me as multifaceted was quite difficult at times under the moniker of musician. I wanted to do away with that classification. And I find that a lot of the work that I do, for me at least, it holds a lot of reverence. It's very sacred. It wants to be taken seriously. And I appreciate, even though this is not always the case, I appreciate in the art world being able to mount something in a gallery and people come and they, they're quiet and they look at it. That alone is a rarity, honestly, in music. It's rare to play a show and have people come and just say, let me just listen. <laughs> let me consider it. And I had been making this work that wanted to be analyzed. So it's been nice to come to the art world. And definitely within the art world, I've had my moments of being like, all right, well, people are going to be like, who's this singer trying to do stuff at Basel? <laughs> but what I've found is a lot of people in the art world already loved my music and were approaching it with that level of analysis or at least just care that I put into it. And so that's been actually really nice to be embraced in that way. And of course, that artifice that I speak of in the music industry, don't get me wrong, it exists across every industry. And I think it's present certainly in the art world as well. And that's fine if I can just find a couple of people to come to the gallery and engage with the work. I'm good. So I have a question, and now we'll go a little bit broader into the realm of identity. I read in interviews that you said that everyone who knew you as a child was shocked to see the self-confident presence on stage and see you singing. And I wondered as I read it, whether there's a part of you which is still shy and that the stage gives you the legitimacy to be seen and heard because you're the one on stage that they have come to see. Absolutely. Okay, that's a great question. Well, I'm certainly an introvert still, and I enjoy my privacy. <laughs> I enjoy my alone time. But shyness really is not just about confidence, but it's also about the belief that you deserve to take up space and that your voice deserves to be heard. As much as my shyness comes from my own kind of spirit and the nature of my spirit, it also comes from a lifetime of being told that my story wasn't interesting or that my story did not deserve to be heard. And what the stage allows you is a microphone. And so, yes, certainly becoming an artist has bestowed me with a certain level of confidence and this belief that even the rituals that I engage in in my own home are art and are artful and should have some kind of place in the public sphere, which is why Black Alachia was so important to make. It's me singing and dancing in the mountains. feels so true to my actual life that it's really nice to put that on camera and 
solidify it in film because that is worth telling that that is true and it's so important to see i think black artists especially in a diverse way in different modes i came across this quote where you said i find reflexively the need to be different in some way as a black artist to try to shift the narrative of what a black man can be and it's a very negative urge to have and i'm curious why you see that as a negative urge or how you struggle with this or maybe have come to conclusions about it? Well, there's two major reasons. I think that anytime you try to shift the public perception of you, it's a negative act. It steals from you. It steals your joy. It steals your peace. And it's a waste of time. What did Toni Morrison say about white, white supremacy? One of the functions of it is that it distracts us from our work. <laughs> and I think doing the work of trying to be something or trying to prove that you're something is such a distraction from your work that is more important, which is just being, is finding inner joy and peace and stability. And so I think it's a negative act purely because it is playing a game. It's playing to this perceived audience. And it's also trying to anticipate what people are going to think of you, which is not a great use of time. And I also think it's a negative act because what it can be at times is really classist. As an experimental Black artist, as a critically whatever, whatever, I think that sometimes you can start stepping into the pool of classism when you say that, well, I'm different. I'm not like the other Black artists. No, I, there's actually a, a certain caliber to what I do. And even though that's not what I'm saying, it eventually becomes that. And you have to think of access as a Black artist. And I think that my understanding of what it means to be an experimental artist is incredibly Black. And I understand Black music to be incredibly broad. And I think that our most experimental artists in this day and age are Black. However, framing an audience are something that have created a barrier for everyday Black people to experimental music or even to just seeing themselves as arbiters of experimentation. So I think it's negative because of that. I never want to be in a position where I'm trying to differentiate myself from other Black artists or from Black music simply for the fact that I am Black. It is what it is and I am what I am. I know it's always a little bit of an ambush when you get read old quotes back to yourself. I promise this is the last one. It's fine. You said, I'm currently really into the idea of being as non-human as possible. When I get on stage, I try to be as free and open as possible and let the performance go anywhere that it wants to go. I want to go further into dressing more dramatically and being this otherworldly presence. Walk me through that. I don't entirely feel that way anymore in terms of wanting to be as non-human as possible. I feel almost the opposite, but the application is almost the same. <laughs> I want to be as human as possible. I want to be as myself as possible. And I'm human. I'm both. I'm human and I'm otherworldly. And I think that, sure, I'm pulling from outside of this body constantly. And I believe that artists are channels for something bigger and a lot more esoteric than words can really describe. But I want to be as human as possible, actually, on stage. And for me, the manifestation, as it currently is, of being human is just telling the truth. And the application of that is wearing dramatic outfits. <laughs> it is pushing the limits of my physical body on stage. It is reaching beyond myself 
but also it's reaching within myself. And the truth is that what I see to be honest and what I see to be human, humanistic, humanizing to other people on stage might seem otherworldly. So maybe that quote is me thinking of how other people might perceive me and and playing to it a little bit. But the, the time I've spent at home in the past couple of years and the last product I've made, Black Latia, is me, is a manifestation of humanness, of humanity. Great. So the last two questions. Moses, what is the first artwork that you remember seeing? The first artwork I remember seeing is photos of my parents. I remember looking at them and looking at the way that they posed and the way that they dressed in the 1980s and the 1970s in Ghana, but also in France, where they also lived before they moved to America. They, to me, are the highest art. The clothes, but also just the snapshot of a moment in time of what it meant to be cosmopolitan Africans in the city, dressing up and going out and showing off. That, for me, was the first artwork that I saw, and it was very formative for me, actually. What is the artwork that most recently moved you? Well, to be honest, last night I was flipping through photo books, which I love to do, and I was looking simultaneously at a book, a monograph that just came out by young photographer Michael Bailey Gates, who I think is based in New York. And he's got this lovely book of predominantly studio photography and a lot of self-portraiture that I love. And I was looking at it at 2 a.m. last night and was very moved by it. But I was also looking at it alongside a book by Nan Golden, which unfortunately I don't actually remember what it's called, but I think it's quite a famous book. And just looking at the way both of these photographers engaged with their subcultural groups, kids from New York <laughs> who might be considered outsiders in really intimate settings. Yeah, so I would say those are the kind of in tandem or the two, the last two artworks that moved me. So it's a juxtaposition. It's a juxtaposition and a comparison. It's interesting to see how it sits Moses, thank you so much. Thank you. I can't believe you asked me to be on this podcast. I am very honored, Mark, and I hope that you found it satisfactory. <laughs> thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. We'll have a new show every other week. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.